0: That, of course, was Black Sabbath with The Shining. And if you don't recognize it, that's because it's from their undersung 1987 LP, The Eternal Idol. This is the post-Ozzy, post-Dio, post-Ian Gillen, and even the post-fucking-Glenn Hughes Black Sabbath. Um, this Eternal Idol is their first album with Tony Martin on vocals. And uh, by this time, Tony Iommi's the only original member left. Even Geezer's gone, so it's not really Black Sabbath, it's kind of blah and uh, anyway uh, tony would take black sabbath from the warner brothers years and into the short-lived irs years when despite their heavy metal pioneer status they were kind of struggling to survive in a much changed and not always for the better metal atmosphere uh with with the exception of um 1982's Humanizer, where they brought dio back for a while and that's an album i bought that year for four bucks on cd and it, that'll give you an idea of where black sabbath and a lot of metal bands were commercially at that point in the 90s but a, a tony, tony tony martin was their man into the mid 90s and that's like five albums over an eight-year period with that uh, dio related hiatus in between so, um, he was there for quite a while, but he's kind of been written, kind of been written out of the history. Um, <laughs> anyway, this, uh, this episode isn't about Black Sabbath or rehabilitating the Tony Martin era, but uh, if anyone has a lead on some of the IRS albums for a reasonable price that is under 30 bucks, drop me a line. No, this episode is about The Shining and Dr. Sleep. So, let's try this again. Much better. Now, um, before I begin, I gotta warn you that you won't gain a lot of new insight or even worthwhile information from this episode. Despite my obvious bona fides as a movie buff and a long-time off-and-on fan of Stephen King's work... I ain't exactly brimming with essay-length pontifications on the significance of the patterns on the chairs near the overlook elevator. I mean, I, I did have a similar chair in my youth, and I, I gotta tell you, I as a kid, I was often haunted by nightmares of it sloshing about in an uncontrolled sea of blood. I mean, I have seen the Room 237 documentary, and I enjoyed roughly... 30 minutes of it. I mean, I I love rabbit holes. Okay. I love rabbit holes as much as the next guy, but rabbit holes have this dangerous tendency to lead too far up your own ass and your freeze framing shots to read fine print on cans of crushed tomatoes or looking for premonitions carved into wallpaper. And sometimes you got to stop futzing under the hood and just enjoy the ride. The Shining's always had a real place of of, uh, significance for me because um, I think along with Poltergeist it's the gold standard for my generation at least in terms of domestic horror. I was too young to see Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining when it opened but weirdly I was absolutely the right age for it. I mean, Danny Torrance, as played by Danny Lloyd, he and I were exactly the same age in 1980. Seven, Muppet-headed, prone to fantasy for escape, and uh, in absolute awe of our fathers. (laughs) Even when I see The Shining now, I recognize the colors and the the technology, the tones and the textures of my own childhood. You know, when I see like the carpet in the Overlook Hotel, yes, it works for the movie's mood. It works for the movie's color palette, but it's not kitsch or, you know, an artistic statement for me. You know, when I was little, that's how a hotel, or a bank, or a dentist office carpet would have looked in like 1979, 1980. Kind of warm, but you're definitely not at home. So don't spill anything. Don't fuck around. I uh, promised not to crawl at my own ass, but it looks like I just spent about 46 minutes talking about carpet. Anyway, I didn't actually see The Shining for the first time until about 1982-83 when it aired for the first time on network television. And it sounds funny, but I remember it because they made a huge deal about it. First time on TV. And I was excited because this meant finally I could watch it. When it was on Showtime or the movie channel, forget it. As soon as Scatman Crullers leaves and Jack Nicholson dons an even more disheveled glare than usual, cue parental Gestapo, right? Go to your room. You can't handle this. You can sit in your bedroom and listen to Shelley Duvall, Popeye's beloved olive oil. You can listen to her scream for her life, but don't you dare watch it. But now... Those fine folks at the Big Three had taken all that objectionable, gross stuff out. They left what they could of the intensity and horror. I mean, you know, not everyone's going home in the same car. But the violence wasn't quite as literal. And if I could survive, Shelley Duvall fighting off an octopus on the big screen when I was eight her judiciously trimmed confrontations with her axe-wielding husband, to a 10-year-old, that's nothing. Later, as I got into Stephen King, I became torn. For a time, I'd say he was my favorite writer. And he hated Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. Well, I loved it. And I wondered, how could a master of horror, with his natural facility for language, story, and rhythm, not even appreciate the cold, dreamlike dread that made the film so memorable? Sure, I understood it. I mean, on the written page, Jack Torrance was different. The complicated, recovering, alcoholic father at the story's heart, he was a sick man succumbing to his rage and disease, but he loved his wife. He loved his son. But in the film, as played by Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance seems incapable of love from the beginning. He recoils at the sound of his wife Wendy's voice, her every syllable like undercooked chicken in his system. His son Danny is just a tiny source of amusement. When Danny assures his mother that he knows the definition of cannibalism because he watched a show about it, Jack mocks, see, it's okay, he saw it on the television. And the Overlook seems to only exacerbate Jack's contempt for his family, and it doesn't take much to prod him to homicide. The only time you really feel sorry for him is when Danny gets mauled by malevolent spirits in Room 237 and Wendy accuses Jack of abusing him. Otherwise dude's a dick, slip sliding into froth-jawed lunacy. But fuck, it's a great performance. And it could exist only in Kubrick's version, with that Wendy, that Danny, and that hotel. The movie's Jack Torrance has no place in Stephen King's book. Look, the 1980 film's a bastardization of the novel, absolutely. No argument. Fuck Stanley. But... As a piece of art, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad the Overlook didn't burn down, as it did at the end of the book. It seemed too imposing, too powerful to destroy. Its interior a massive playground capable of summoning all sorts of awful history. Its phantoms could entice, convince, connive... They could pour you a drink at an otherwise deserted, unstocked bar. Free you from a locked freezer. Help you drive an axe into the chest of a would-be hero. Eliminate every avenue of escape. Would it really allow itself to die in a fire? How common? No. It would want to live to kill again and again in the convenient guise of a harmless hotel. Hello, I'm Dale Wellbouts for the Power Station, downtown Albany's official happening teenage nightclub, where you can enjoy a pop, Pop, that's night away at 9 p.m., 10pm on No Touch Fridays. We got all the Frios you can eat, Within Reason, and Plenty of Uno, Chastity Belts available upon request. This week, we got a new shipment of all your favorite songs, so you can show off your best moves. We got your Madonna, Still a Virgin, Nice Ranger, Our Sisters a Christian, Rio Speedwagon, Can't fight this feeling no more. Prince's Computer Blue. Oh my daughter likes this one. She listens to it with a door lock. And like always, my copy of Steppenwolf's Greatest Hits. And just a reminder, we pre-taste your big gulps. Who the hell are you fooling? This is a respectable establishment. Well, that's enough preaching for one commercial. Come to the power station. It's a stone gas out of sight. No outside pizza. No drugs. In 2013, Stephen King reclaimed The Shining with a new novel, Dr. Sleep. He bodlerized Kubrick's take. Dick Halloran lived to be old. Jack Torrance was redeemed. The Overlook was gone, truly gone. He'd made an effort once before, Reviving the Shining as a three episode 1997 ABC TV miniseries directed by Nick Garris. It's decent with Steven Weber as a kinder, gentler Jack Torrance and Rebecca De Mornay as a stronger, sexier Wendy. Plus, it was filmed at the actual inspiration for the Overlook, The Stanley Hotel in Colorado. But, authenticity aside, it's no match for the older film in atmosphere and scale. Too colorful, too bright. The overlook will always be the Timberline Lodge right here in Oregon. And I gotta tell you, man, as someone who went there a number of times in the late 80s and early 90s, It was always disappointing to walk into a completely different layout. The overlook was never there. Naturally, Dr. Sleep became a film released this week, and director Mike Flanagan had an interesting problem. The Shining, yeah... was a best-selling novel read by millions of people over the last 40 years but I think it's safe to say that despite its incredible success more people at this point have seen the Stanley Kubrick movie than have read the book and even those who have read the book easily get the two confused so you can't really ignore Kubrick You just can't, but you also have to placate an author who's famously dissatisfied with how that film turned out. How do you please everyone? How do you reconcile what its creator considers unconscionable liberties with what an audience would naturally expect from a sequel to a horror movie classic? For, mo- for the most part, Dr. Sleep succeeds but I think the movie's more interesting when it concentrates on what otherwise could be a standalone story The grown Dan Torrance, here played by the more bankable Ewan McGregor struggling with the same demons that killed his father and he helps a young girl come to grips with the same psychic powers he possesses the quote unquote shining, while protecting her from a ravenous cult called the true knot, which literally consumes such energies. And Rebecca Ferguson plays the group's leader, Rose, the hat. And it's a, it's God. It's an electrifying, maddening and intoxicating performance. She's so fantastic. I mean, there's no greater pleasure than in watching this pseudo immortal easily devour a path through children only to discover to her horror one powerful enough to kill her at last. And that child Abra Stone exudes youthful cockiness and a kind of endearing naivete and Kylie Curran's portrayal of her is outstanding. And here, Dr. Sleep is a, just a complimentary extension of The Shining, growing in directions distant from its past while acknowledging what came before. But the story knows we want our ghosts. We want to go back and face them one last time. So Mike Flanagan obliges he gives us the overlook. First at the beginning, in its 1980 shape, then at the end, as a broken, empty, dilapidated last stand. And unfortunately, it's here, I believe, that Dr. Sleep's momentum slows. While it's cool to watch the hotel reawaken, around the adult-down torrents, you know, kind of recognizing the return of the quote-unquote prodigal son, it can't quite evoke the same feeling. It's too small, too artificial, and its specters, when released to feed, can only be facsimiles, ghosts, if you will, of ghosts. Except for one scene in the ballroom when Dan and the bartender have a conversation that mirrors his his father's 1980 exchange with the Overlook's previous caretaker, where beneath a friendly chat lies a darker understanding about correction. The climax is more like a greatest hits package of re-recorded material. Everything's just a little off. The twin girls in this form are recycled horror film icons now. I mean, they're, they're bumper stickers and meme punchlines, completely incapable of inspiring the same fear one felt when they first materialized suddenly Side by side in a hallway, coldly beseeching a terrified Danny Torrance to join them in the afterlife forever and ever and ever. I left Dr. Sleep with warring feelings of nostalgic fulfillment and the reinforced belief that not every story from my past needs a belated epilogue. Yeah. It's kind of been hard revisiting the fictional figures from my youth to know that they struggled, failed, grew older, and died. Yeah. It's kind of like a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the little kid grows up to be a, a meth-addled wife-beater who chokes to death on his own vomit as a whorehouse burns down around him. After this last Star Wars movie, I may need therapy. Sometimes you can't go home again. But at least we'll always have that party in 1921 at the Overlook Hotel when you and I and the hedge maze were young.